Fletcher has more experience with propulsion systems. But Carstairs is better with people. Considering this is a supervisory position, I'd go with her. I guess you're right. Didn't we just do crew evaluation reports? Three months ago. Seems like three weeks. Why don't we just give everybody a promotion and call it a night, Commander? Fine with me, Captain. Could we have two coffees, please? Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Gimme That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 55 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and the show is back from its six-month hiatus. Trek fans, that's what you can expect for the time being, a six-episode season with a break of the same length, giving me time to reinvigorate myself and the show and find some of the best topics and guests I can, like today's. A guest so good, it's the third time he's been on the show. Mike Lacroix is a military expert and the podcaster responsible for the Canadian Military History Podcast, himself serving in the Canadian military. He came on the show at episode 15 to answer the question of whether or not Starfleet was military, then returned at episode 42 to talk about insubordination and disciplinary action, and now part three of that ongoing conversation, promotions and career management in the military and how Star Trek compares. Mike Lacroix, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. I was really looking forward to this. I think we set this up a long time ago. We actually set it up at the end of the previous episode, and it's been a matter of just waiting for an opportunity. So thank you. And I'm happy to open my umpteenth season. I, I haven't counted this as seasons, but this new season with this topic, because it's always fascinating to compare how Starfleet, obviously television writers, you know, what they understand of a military structure, but certainly Starfleet has one. Well, let's remind people about your background and really how this topic came to you, because you, you're the one who uh, suggested it. Right. So I'm in my 33rd year in the Canadian Armed Forces, specifically Canada's Army Reserve. I've attained the rank of major, and I'm currently commanding a company in Canada's Army Reserve. Right. And career management is is something that, you know, you look at. In my previous role as a unit regimental sergeant major and then as a brigade sergeant major, I was responsible for the career management of the sergeants and warrant officers within my unit and then within my brigade. Now, as an officer, I have junior officers, so it's less people, but I still have to manage their careers as they progress. So making sure that there's the proper gateways, that they hit the proper courses, milestones, gain experience, so that they can also have a, a successful career in advance as well. Right. So it's, it's up to you as their leader to find, you make sure they have the opportunities for advancement. That's right. The onus isn't all on the on the person themselves to somehow shine and, and get promoted or something. Right. And there's a real sense of mentoring. But when they go on a course, 
it's up to them to prove themselves during that gateway course. As they come out of it with the graduation, we give them some more experience. We challenge them a little bit more. And then they go on the next course. And hopefully at some point in there, they've uh, either increased their responsibilities or increased their rank. Before we go any further, I just want to tell the listeners that no matter where this conversation leads us, we both fully understand that Star Trek is a TV franchise and that things frequently happen for television reasons. That's right. <laughs> yeah, like keeping your cast around or maintaining the status quo that won't, I don't know, alienate the casual viewer. We get that. And if certain series wind up not getting a good realism grade from Mike, uh, it's because we're interested in seeing how Trek compares. We don't think it ne necessarily makes your favorite show bad, okay? So, That's right. Yes, absolutely. I've just eliminated half the comments. Uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> But don't let that deter you. Actually, we're interested in your opinions and questions. Just drop them off at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Okay. I call this show Give Me That Promotion, but obviously that's not all there is to us. Let's talk about military careers. And I, I think we call them careers because there is possible progress, right? Star Trek right. mostly follows officers, but even non-coms have different ranks, etc. Is it just about rank or uh, can you advance? Well, can you make lateral moves that are beneficial for you? Well, it could be about rank, but it all depends on what um, actualizes an individual. So if I could pull a military career out of the air here, and if I was to say you start and enroll as a military truck driver, well, you could have the mindset that a successful career in advancement would mean that you accumulate qualifications on different vehicles. So you might start on a, a light pickup truck and then move to a heavy pickup truck And then you might get your air brake qualification. Maybe you move into the world of towing, tow trucks. Maybe you move into the world of transport trucks. And you get rewarded personally by gaining more and more vehicle qualifications. Or the same person could start at the exact same place, but they might move from driving to becoming a driver instructor or a master driver, we call it. You could move from driving to dispatching, and then you could find yourself at the end managing an entire fleet of vehicles, and that would come with different responsibilities and different ranks. So it all depends on what the individual finds to be rewarding and also what are the needs of the unit that you're employed in and how do they see you advance and how do they see you progress in your career. There is a difference between role and rank if i make my first comparison to star trek you know like being bridge crew even at a lower rank is understandably a better role than maybe somewhere else in the bowels of the ship does that make sense yeah if that's the way the the individual wants to look at it for sure yeah absolutely but somebody who's in charge of the shuttle bay and they're responsible for all those shuttles and making sure that the next one is ready to go and The one that's got a little bit beat up is getting fixed. They might think that they're the most important person on the entire ship because no one's going anywhere in a shuttle unless that person is doing their job properly. So you might think that being a bridge officer is the most important, but that shuttle bay manager 
could be the person that believes that he's the most, or she's the most important. Bridge crew is the more glamorous. <laughs> That's right. But yeah. a- as we see in the cartoon show, Lower Decks, right? you know, they've got ensigns doing a lot of non-glamorous jobs. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But they're still equal to any ensign who would work on the bridge. And sometimes they even, they do as well. They have their own shifts. Like to me, it looks like they're being given opportunities to shine in different roles. Absolutely. And find their own way in that. Okay, let's talk about career management and progression. How does that work? I, I imagine there are many facets to that. And maybe we can relate these different facets to actual Star Trek episodes that people will remember. So the very first thing that happens, and this happens for everybody who has a substantive rank, so someone who has a, a rank that that actually has some responsibilities tied to it, is we have an evaluation process. So every year we run all of our leaders or potential leaders through an evaluation process. And we've seen that on Next Generation's episode Lower Decks or Tapestry, where Picard doesn't understand why he's being evaluated in a certain way when he sees himself in a different light. He's being told the truth. You've never done anything. You've never shone. You've never shown any exceptional work that would get you a promotion in that area. And in lower decks, they're all worried about their crew evaluation. They're all worried about their upcoming evaluation. So once we have that evaluation, we're going to send people out onto courses. And we saw courses in Next Generation, Thine Own Self, where Counselor Troy had to take the bridge officer course. Right. And that was done concurrently during the day-to-day operations of the ship. But you might send somebody away to a school in order to get that course done. We saw that in Wrath of Khan. We're at Starfleet Academy and all the cadets are on the bridge. They're all running through their course. And then they have their final evaluation where they move from a simulator to actually running a starship for real. So that would be um, each of those people on board that ship would be rated in that role on a course that they're conducting. And we do that as well, where we have an infantry dismounted company commander's course, but at the same time, we're running an infantry company sergeant major's course. And then when the infantry company commander takes the company out to be evaluated, that sergeant major is put in at the same time on the same event. So the two of them are being evaluated on separate courses but it's during the same training event. So one, one's being evaluated more on, on their leadership of that company. or Yeah. So training cruises exist, just like in Star Trek. That's right, yeah. So does it matter, you know, if you've been in a, at a certain rank for a long time, you know, is, is there promotion just like built in or how does that work? Right. So when you're in your evaluation process, you're going to record how many years that person has been in rank. And there are some promotions that you cannot have without the minimum time and rank. For example, when I was a captain and I was waiting for time and rank to become a major, I had to wait a full four years before I could be promoted to major. Despite the fact that I had the course that I needed, I had the experience that I needed, there was positions that were available, we'll get to that in a minute, I still had to wait that time and rank. And we can see that in Kirk's career, although he went very quickly, he still had to do his time in each rank as he advanced. And Picard as well, we know his backstory, that he was on the Stargazer before and he had done other things in his career. So he he had to spend time at different levels. 
What we didn't see time and rank being a factor in was the Captain Kirk from the Kelvin timeline, where he spent no time in rank, and then suddenly he's in command of a starship. That's a real huge departure from the norm. I'll, I'll label that. Yeah, no, as a lot of people have said, you know, the Kelvin movies are are less realistic than the the normal brand. I think they started from a good spot, but they were too much in a hurry to get the characters to where we were accustomed to seeing them. Yeah, yeah. And it, it would have been equally an interesting storyline had they left them at their junior levels for a little while. So once we got some time and rank, we've got courses taken care of, we've done some evaluation, we're going to test drive these people in their new positions. So in Gambit 1 and 2, we see Data as a captain and Worf acting as his 2IC as executive officer. In Pen Pals, we see Crusher, Wesley Crusher, that is, working as the team leader. So he's gaining experience how to lead a small team, which is one of the first developmental uh, phases that he wants to get through. In uh, Next Generation Redemption Part 2, Picard is even evaluated as a fleet commander. So he's advanced to a role that we see him holding later on in, in the Star Trek series. He's working as an admiral even though he's not wearing the rank of Admiral, or perhaps Commodore would be more appropriate because we don't see enough Commodores, but it is part of the Star Trek rank structure. Everybody seems to skip Commodore. He's working at that higher rank where he's commanding a group of starships rather than just his own starship. And these opportunities will exist? Oh, for sure, yeah. Tons of people uh, are employed underranked just for the purpose of evaluating them in that new rank. Uh, when I was the regimental sergeant major, I would go on normal routine vacation for two weeks, two weeks vacation somewhere, and I would tell whoever was likely to be my successor, I would tell them that they're now the acting RSM while I'm away. And all of my decisions and all of my responsibilities are transferred to that person during that small time that I'm not in that role. And when I come back, we have a discussion of how it went, and then that ends up being reflected on their evaluation for the year. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as a like a field commission. We see that a lot in Star Trek, but that's because, you know, something bad happened probably. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The, this is for good reasons. <laughs> so once we've seen them perform at the next level, we've seen them have courses, we know what their time in their rank is, we'll do what's called meriting. So we take all the people of a certain rank and we discuss them. Now, obviously, when they're discussing majors, I have to leave the room. But while they're discussing lieutenants and captains and sergeants, I'm in the room. And I might even be uh, the lead of the discussion. So we saw that in Redemption Part 2 when they're discussing who is most suitable to command in the other vacant positions. So they have a list of names and they're going down the list of names and they're saying, well, this person would be good on this ship. This person would be good on this ship. Oh, by the way, we forgot about data. That's probably not a good thing, but uh, they fixed it in the end. Right. That's how he gets to be on that ship where he has that. Uh... We talked about this a lot, a lot last time because of the insubordination element. Now, you mentioned vacancy as well, because it's, you know, is there a spot open? Data cannot be jumped up to ship commander or anything unless that position is open. So in Next Generation, it's the best example that we have. Skin of Evil. Tasha is killed, and then Worf is promoted, or not promoted, but he's appointed into her position. 
which was a good thing that, that we see that all the time. But the one piece that's missing is maybe Worf wasn't merited for that position among all the lieutenants. <laughs> Being Canadian, saying lieutenant is a little awkward, but that's okay. I'll, I'll get over it. Maybe Worf wasn't merited against all the other lieutenants in the security branch to actually remain in that position. So what we would normally see is there's a vacancy, someone releases, someone is hurt, someone moves, gets transferred. So there's a vacancy, someone jumps in to fill it, but that person that jumps in to fill it may not actually be the one that ends up keeping that role. They might revert back to their original role, but the person that's been succession planned for that post will come in and take that spot. In um, Deep Space Nine, and I think we'll get to a better discussion of it later, all the positions are vacant. Everybody shows up. Every position is vacant. Uh, most significantly, it's about Cisco who moves into the position of command. So tons of vacancies. Everybody's been merited. Everybody's been selected. They all move in, and um, some people move in like you said earlier, laterally, so they keep the same rank, and then other people get promoted into that spot. In the motion picture, there were too many captains. So Kirk comes in as an admiral, holding the appointment of captain. Captain Decker is the substantive captain, so he's wearing the rank of captain, but because there's now two people holding the appointment of captain, Decker is reduced in rank. So that's a little awkward, but I think that was done, that awkwardness was done for the script, but it would make sense. There could only be one captain, uh, despite what we see later on in the movie series. Is this something that would actually happen? I mean, Star Trek really does a lot of this. It's one of my uh, least favorite tropes. There is a Commodore, an ambassador, an admiral on board the ship, and they, they call into question everything that the captain does or you know they suddenly they take over that, that that sort of stuff right so i was just i was just watching some scenes from the original series where the other commodore decker takes command of the enterprise well he needs to have authority to take command of that ship he can't just do that on his own accord there's a a relief system that exists where somebody who is appointed as the commanding officer of a unit a ship whatever they're appointed by not just their boss, but their boss two up. So the whole thing where Decker says that he's now in command because he's the higher rank, he's still not given authority to take command of the Enterprise during that event. He has the rank to do it, but he doesn't have that authority to say, I now take possession of your ship and I now own it, I command it. That authority to put him in that spot exists maybe two ranks higher than Commodore Decker. So Kirk did have that, that authority. It's not just a, you know, a cross-generational revenge or anything <laughs> yeah, right. to do that to Decker. Okay. Another thing that we see uh, that happens quite often is tenure. So when a person is appointed to a role that's very significant, there's a tenure assigned to that. So when I was appointed as regimental sergeant major and when I was appointed as brigade sergeant major, as soon as I started that role, day one, it was known that that was a three-year post. Sometimes we have an extension if your successor needs a little bit more time and rank or a little bit more courses or experience before they step into that role. But we do have tenures for senior positions. And we saw that in 
Star Trek, the original series. It's right in the opening credits. It's a five-year mission. So when we say it's a five-year mission, what we're expecting to see is this crew is assembled for five years. They go out, and when the five-year mission ends, they all come back, and those people, some would stay for another five years, like Spock, and others would be moved on. They would be moved on to another position. They'd be moved on to another ship. And when we look at the cage and we look at uh, where no man has gone before, we see that the majority of the crew has rotated out, except for Spock. Spock stayed on to continue where almost 100% of the crew has been rotated out. And that would be normal. Whereas, Absolutely. whereas trying to keep the crew together, no matter what, like Riker refusing all those positions, you know, as captain or whatever. Right. And for years on end, you know, basically, next gen, when you consider the movies, that, w that would be unusual in, in today's structure. Right. So when we see Beverly Crusher moving to Starfleet Medical, even though that was done for behind the scenes reasons and maybe unpleasant reasons, according to the gossip, that's normal. That is absolutely normal. She would be assigned to the Enterprise for an inaugural mission to get things started. And then she's doing a great job. Well, let's move her to Starfleet Medical because there's a vacancy over there. She's got the time and rank and experience. We need her in that position more than we need her in the other position. And we have another doctor that's ready to move in. So that totally makes sense to me, that movement of her to Starfleet Medical. It's like in Star Trek, they seem to have some, I don't know if you have the same control over your career. They'll be offered positions and then they, they might accept them or not, you know, right. based on what they, their self-actualization, which is an important part of, let's say, the, the invisible economy of the Star Trek universe. So it's interesting that you brought that up. This is, we're transitioning from one evaluation form to another. And part of that new discussion that we're having with people is where do you see yourself? What is it that you want to get done during your time in the Canadian forces? So it's no longer just your bosses looking at you and evaluating you and putting you where you need to be. There's now a component where we as evaluators now have to have that discussion with the people that we evaluate and record the discussion. And if somebody says, you know what, I want to be a master sniper and I want to be this, I want to be that. Well, you're going to have that reality check with the person and say, look, if you want to be a master sniper, you're in the wrong unit being a truck driver. That's not going to happen. You need to transition to the infantry. You need to go to this place. You need to work for six to seven years in a rifle company. Then you have to be selected into recce platoon. So there is tons of steps that that person would have to follow in order to get to being a master sniper, even though it sounds like the coolest job, it has to be a, a reality discussion. Now, on the other hand, if this person is uh, really keen, they're really fit, they have really good um, marksmanship skills, they've been noted that they're, they're doing a great job in that world then maybe you would encourage them to take those steps that are necessary to move into that sniper world. Who knows? But now we're having those discussions with the people that we evaluate. But can you, that, I guess that was my question, can you refuse an assignment? Oh, yes, absolutely okay. you can. And uh, there are some consequences that come with that. So if you've been merited, if you've gone through, if the organization has gone through all these steps to evaluate you, give you courses, put you into experiences that you're you're going to be ready. And then suddenly they say, okay, you are now at the top of the merit list. 
you've merited high, you're ready for promotion, there's a vacancy we need you to fill, and you say, uh, no thanks, I'm going to do something else, I'd rather stay where I am. That is uh, what we call a career-limiting move. So you will end up at the bottom of the merit list, where people who are junior to you will now leapfrog you, and the chance of you coming back to the top and being offered again would be very slim. There are things that would work into your factor if your rank and your trade and your experience is, is so rare that there's not a lot of people competing against you. You might move back to the top of the merit list a little quicker, but if your trade and rank level is flush with tons of people working at that level, then you would potentially not move back to the top of the merit list. But it's very circumstantial and it, and it would have to rely on a lot of variables. Right. We can assume that uh, Riker had a lot of interesting experiences that kept making him rise back to the top. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we saw those experiences on TV. So we know it's, you know, I don't know what's happening on other ships, but the Enterprise side share of the unusual. That's right. <laughs> okay. So there are a couple of other uh, elements to the the career advancement. So let's get into those. Sure. So you could be appointed. We've, we've touched on some of this already. You could be appointed to a role. In other words, like we said before, Kirk is wearing the rank of rear admiral and then he's working in the role of a captain. So he's appointed to a role that's below him. And then in Redemption Part 2, both Riker and Data are appointed to the role of a captain, but they're not given any promotion to go with that appointment. So you can be appointed to a role without getting that promotion. The other thing you can have is you can have a promotion to a rank without a change in your role. In Star Trek Generations, Worf was promoted to lieutenant commander, but there was no change in his role. He remained in the same identical role. In Deep Space Nine, Cisco was promoted to captain and there was no change in his role. But I was going to ask you about that maybe a little later in the discussion if maybe there was an increase in his responsibilities, because I think, if I remember correctly, you're an expert on the discussion of Cisco, but maybe we'll save that. We'll park that one for a little bit. What you're saying here is a lot like the setup for the the original series when they went to the movies, because in the movies, they all seem to have the same jobs they had on the show, but all their ranks are, are way higher. That's right. They keep getting promoted and they never leave. <laughs> they never go to a no. different job. No, so who are still on the switchboard, etc. So that's exactly where I was going. <laughs> okay, well, okay, let's go into like deep into examples because now we've got an overall picture of what's involved. Let's look at some specific careers. Like, is there sure. someone whose career really doesn't make any sense as shown, but that you you would like to fix, basically, <laughs> if you were like a, a writer? Uhura. She starts with the rank of lieutenant. And then she gets promoted all the way to the rank of commander, but she stays in the same job. Right. There was that little hiatus when she was a transporter operator, but that was a little subterfuge. That was a little silly nonsense that was uh, manufactured by the, um, by the rescue team. She's essentially doing the same job. So it makes sense that during the original series, she was a, a lieutenant and a department head for communications. And when you watch the original series, you can see that the other people that are working in communication, they're a lieutenant junior grade. They're not a substantive full lieutenant. So that says to me as a viewer is that Uhura is the department head of communications. 
And as a lieutenant, she commanded the Enterprise. I'm not super familiar with the animated series, but I've looked it up, and I think it's two times she commanded the Enterprise as a lieutenant, which makes sense. Yeah, they had her either command the Enterprise while the other people are down below on the planet, or command, like, lead a rescue team. So she's more of a leader in that show, which was, you know, the scriptwriter was uh, DC Fontana, was a woman. So I think she gave Uhura a little more responsibility as befitted the character than the television, you know, show could or would. Right. So then when we move from the original series to the motion picture, she's promoted to Lieutenant Commander. And that still makes sense because as we're led to believe, the motion picture enterprise is a little bit bigger. There's a little bit more tech her responsibilities would have increased at that point. And that would have made sense that she would still be the department head. She would have more people working for her. And you can see her in a leadership position during the reconstruction of the bridge. She's not the one with the tools in her hands, if you look carefully. Mm -hmm. Everyone else has the tools in their hands. What doesn't make sense is that she's still personally manning the communications station as a commander from Wrath of Khan to Star Trek The Undiscovered Country. And we know that we want to keep our cast together and we want to keep these actors and we want to see them continue in the show and and we, we like seeing them. But as far as career management, to have someone who is equal to the ship 2IC basically manning a radio, it hurts a little bit in the logical area. Right. So the way I would fix this is the original series to the motion picture would essentially remain the same. And then when we get to Star Trek II, we'd keep her as a lieutenant commander, but I would have her mentoring or supervising or instructing students at the comm station rather than manning the comm station herself. And then those students would be learning from her, just like Savick is learning from Spock. Now, once things go sideways, she's the most experienced person. She Maybe she would jump in and, and take over and she would move out of the instructor role the same way that Kirk moves out of the instructor role and the same way as McCoy moves out of the instructor role for a sick bay. He reports sick. I got sick bay all set up. So that means he has taken over that sick bay. The student is no longer in charge. The, those movies wouldn't change that much if you made that fix, because I mean, there's one of them where she stays on earth. They leave with a right. skeleton crew. There's one of them where they're all on a, a bird of prey. So very much a skeleton crew. Right. You know, she, that wouldn't change her position. That wouldn't change her role. She could still be doing that. But then it's Star Trek five and six that are the most problematic. In Star Trek six, I would put her on the Excelsior, and at her rank of commander, I would make her the XO for Sulu. So that would make perfect sense because she is a department head during all of the time we've seen her so far. So now it's time to make her responsible for the management of the ship and to have the department heads of all the departments report to her. So she's already proven herself that she can command the ship twice. She's already proven herself at Starfleet Academy as an instructor. So now it's time to really put the heat, get her on as XO, full commander, substantive in the rank, full role of that appointment, and she becomes Sulu's 2IC. She can still come up with the solution to the cloaked bird of prey problem, but she just does it from the bridge of the Excelsior. Just like Sulu was 
solving problems from the bridge of the Excelsior. She would be replacing Janice Rand, who essentially got that role. Last time we saw her, she was a transporter chief, before that a yeoman. But here, she does seem to be manning the communications. Right. Rand can still man the communications, but Uhura is second in command in my fix. Well, (laughs) I think that would work. I mean, it doesn't take much. Sometimes it's like there's just like failure of the imagination or because even promoting Sulu was a big deal. You know, so uh, right. to do that to two characters, maybe maybe they got cold feet. And that that's one character that had a problem. Is there a show that did it better or worse than the others? Well, I would like to s- say that the show with the worst crew development that had the most potential would be Voyager. So this goes beyond Harry Kim not being promoted. There was so much opportunity for career management, career advancement, promotions, demotions. I mean, we saw Tom Paris get demoted and then promoted back higher than Harry Kim, but he could have been shuffled around a little bit more within the departments on the ship. And as a storytelling device, that would have been interesting because he's moving through all these other areas in the ship. He could have still come up with the Delta Flyer. Maybe that's where he lands in shuttle bay control, working on keeping the shuttles operational. And that's how he comes up with the Delta Flyer. The Maquis could have been integrated into the crew at a much slower rate. I don't remember what I was, if I was watching a YouTube video or listening to a podcast, but somebody said, wouldn't it have been a better story if the Maquis crew kept their ship for the first season and then they were more the antagonist than the Kazon were? That would have been a a way better story. That may have been this show because... uh... I think we discussed <laughs> such things, uh, myself and uh, Jonathan Schaefer-Hames ha- right. had some solutions for Voyager, and I think Jonathan came up with that one, maybe. That was a perfect solution. And then something happens to the Maquis ship at the season finale. Now they have to rescue them. Now they have to integrate them. In Game of Thrones, especially the episode The Red Wedding, you're looking at these people, the characters that you love, the, that you enjoy seeing them. Things are going great everybody's cheerful, everybody's happy, and then the Red Wedding happens, and we see tons of our characters, their arcs end. Well, I know TV series were not ready at that time to tell stories like that, but Star Trek Voyager could have been the one that broke the ground rather than Game of Thrones, and they could have had beloved characters that you've seen forever get killed off, and you just know that nobody is safe. That would have made a very, very compelling series. Everybody who seems important who dies, dies in the pilot. Right. So that, that brings up your, you know, the point about vacancy. Like, this is a ship that lost a large part of its crew. So there were a lot of vacancies. And I don't think the Maquis filled them all because that was a very small ship. So, so seeing characters kind of stuck in the same role and the same rank for the seven years, weren't there a lot of opportunities on this ship? And it doesn't seem to play out that way. Well, I call it putting all the toys back in the toy box at the end of the episode, right? So you have to put all your toys away. They all have to go back to where they started at the beginning of the episode. Voyager had such a potential to not do that. There were big changes throughout the series, but they happened at at season events. Where Tom Paris came on board, he instantly had conflict with the executive officer, so that could have been stretched out for longer than half an episode. Well, that officer 
used to be Starfleet. This is a, the case for a couple of the Maquis there. They used to be Starfleet, then they left. Now they're reintegrated because of the circumstances. But can you do that? Can you leave the military and just come back and pick up where you left off like Chakotay did in that? You can. It's not the wisest thing to do, but you most certainly can. So I think our best career recovery was Spock. Spock says that he served under Pike for 11 years, four months, and five days. So you know from that that he's probably done two, maybe three, five-year missions by that time. He probably joined the crew of the Enterprise as a lieutenant junior grade, but by the time he's working with Pike, he's substantively a, a lieutenant. His rank is never stated. The insignia he wears is identical to Pike, but you can tell that he's a junior crew member. He's not in a senior position. He's likely promoted to lieutenant commander by Pike during the 11 years. And when we next see Spock, he's on the bridge of the Enterprise in where no man has gone before. Gary Mitchell is the 2IC. Spock is the science officer. And they're both stated as being lieutenant commander. So they're equal in rank, but Gary Mitchell is holding a higher appointment as XO. Spock's rank is finally confirmed as Lieutenant Commander in the Menagerie Part 1. That's that's the first time they actually say his rank out loud. And he's last referred to as Lieutenant Commander in Tomorrow's Yesterday during Season 1. In a mock time, he's referred to by rank as Commander. So something happened between the end of Season 1 and the beginning of Season 2 where he's promoted, but his appointment stays the same. So things are going good for Spock. He stayed with the same ship. He's being promoted in a timely manner, things are happening for him. And then he's named as the best first officer in the fleet. He's named best first officer a couple of times. So we know that now he's being merited for captaincy. He's at the top of the merit list. He's got time and rank. He's got all the experience. He's commanded the Enterprise a few times. And then what does he do? He goes on a spiritual journey for personal reasons. So he doesn't take a leave of absence. He's gone. He's out. He's released. Who knows if he got offered a command of his own. Maybe it's covered in a novel somewhere. But he goes from being the top of the merit list for first officers to completely out. This is what we call a career-limiting move. He then returns to the Enterprise. He comes in. He's reinstated. It says right there, reinstated at the rank of commander. He's reinstated as a science officer, but he's not reinstated as the XO. So he doesn't have that appointment. That XO job stays with Decker. Here comes the recovery. When he gets back into the world of Starfleet and wearing the uniform and his spiritual journey is over, he does get promoted to captain and he does get assigned a starship. But he's assigned at the school and he's assigned a training vessel. So is he a captain? Yes. Does he have his own starship? Yes. Is he out there doing five-year missions, seeking out new life and new civilizations? No, he's at the school teaching. I mean, I have to be careful because I just spent three years at the school teaching as a major, so I can't really shoot that down. That is an important role. That is an assignment I've held myself, but I didn't do a career-limiting move prior to that. So Spock never gets an operational command, and then he ends up serving under Kirk as a demoted captain, Kirk that is, being demoted, but he serves as executive officer with the rank of captain, 
but he's not reduced in rank like Commander Decker was, which is a weird thing for them to do. But I guess they didn't want that rank tension that they were trying to establish during the motion picture. Wasn't Scotty a, a captain of engineering or something? Right. I don't know if it's at that this was point. A weird but one, yeah, because <laughs> he was he was transferred to the Excelsior and given the promotion to captain, captain of engineering. So okay, there's a vacancy, there's an appointment, but when he gets returned to the Enterprise, they don't take the rank away. So he's overranked for that position, and that happens from time to time, where someone will be working in a position that is slated for a certain rank, but because they're holding and they're substantive in another rank, we ask for permission to overrank that person in that job. And that, that happens from time to time. It's just, it just seems like that enterprise is way overpowered in, in the sense of, aren't there vacant positions elsewhere for these highly skilled, <laughs> highly experienced personnel, you know? Right. Yeah. But we as the audience, we expect to see all our familiar faces and having the same interpersonal conflicts that we've enjoyed all these times. So writers are a little bit constrained that way. For military personnel, this would be a great trajectory. The first part, that's a pretty good career for somebody. When he does the career-limiting move or commits career suicide by going on the spiritual journey, that outcome is the most realistic expectation that we could see. Because the, the Maquis, that example is totally far out because it's, I mean, they've turned into terrorists. That's right. And because yeah. of the circumstances, they're integrated in the crew and Chakotay becomes XO. But normally, that would not happen. That's right. For me, like we mentioned them a couple of times. I want to address this. The worst career has to be Harry Kim, right? And recently in Discovery, and I don't want to go too far into the season, season four. I want to avoid spoilers for, for people who haven't right. watched it. But when Tilly, who was a cadet in season one, is made lieutenant junior grade, that's not much of a spoiler, at the start of the fourth. So over three years, she goes from cadet to lieutenant junior grade. I immediately thought of poor Harry because seven right. years on the ship with a lot of vacancy. Sure, he's bridge crew. I mean, that's the glamorous assignment, but... He never gets out of that ensign. Uh, and we're supposed to believe that maybe he's an admiral in the, the future or a captain in the future because there is a like a, an episode where you see the future and he's a captain. What did Janeway have against him? Or the writers, because I saw a YouTube video recently where Garrett Wong was saying how he should have been promoted. And the writers were saying, no, you're not getting promoted. Forget about it. He was even lobbying for a better career for Harry Kim. Sure. So for seven years, he enters the crew at a learning rank. We don't really see ensigns coming into anything other than school environments. That's where that rank level belongs. But occasionally it happens where someone at a school rank is employed in an operational area. Then he fills a senior lieutenant's position as the OPSO. So the OPSO is, in my world, is a captain. And they're a captain that's almost ready for promotion to major. They might need a course or some time in, but when they're filling the position of OPSO, they're being evaluated to move to the rank of major. He's equivalent to Data in the Star Trek universe. He's equivalent to Data. That's right. And Data is wearing the rank of major in, in like rank to rank equivalency. So he's acting in a capacity above his rank and experience, and then he's never promoted or given acting rank equal to his role. So that, that really is a bit of a, a disappointment in how they chose to handle that career. Is he the worst? I would say that he's tied with another person who absolutely does not 
deserve the rank that they wore. So it's kind of the opposite, where Harry Kim was working at a senior level and earned the experience. This other person didn't even finish Starfleet Academy. And the only reason that they were put into the position is because the captain was disabled. The acting captain was removed from duty. And the Kelvin timeline Kirk, he assumes command where there would be a hundred or more people on that starship that would be way more qualified. And then he's made substantive in the role of captain overnight. So even though Pike appointed him to be the 2IC, if anything should happen to him, he'll be 2IC of the ship and Spock will be captain. Each of those department heads would have seniority over Kirk. And when Spock is disabled, any one of those commanders, lieutenant commanders, or even lieutenants would have way more experience and way more authority to assume command than a cadet who just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I enjoyed the Kelvin Timeline movies as movies, but that whole piece of quickly ascending to the to the appointment or the rank or position of captain was just a bridge too far for me. It, it really it took me right out of the movie. It's complete nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> but we talked a lot about problems. I yeah, I, I don't want to be all too negative. But let's talk about successes. If Voyager failed on this front, which show did the best? We never answered that question. Right. So I think the show that had that showed really showed the best crew development as a whole is your favorite Deep Space Nine. I'm currently listening to a podcast that's going episode by episode through Deep Space Nine right now. That's where they are. And I'm really impressed by some of the things that that I didn't know about Deep Space Nine. I watched it through once. And the first thing that happens is Cisco comes aboard as a commander. I think he's underranked at that position. I think he should have come in as a captain. But then eventually, as part of the storyline, he is promoted to captain. So what I wanted to ask you, since you're the resident expert, was there an increase in his responsibility when he moved from commander to captain? Here's the thing. In Star Trek, in this era, what they did was every time you went to a uh, an outpost, every time you went to a base, a station, they did not have captains at the top. They had a commander. There's a station commander. So when they put Cisco in that position, the tradition of the show was that stations are commanded by commanders. Oh, there you go. So that's what they gave him. I think he's commanding the Defiant even before he becomes captain. But once right. the Defiant is in there, once Deep Space Nine is, it's not just on a trading route like an important new trading route that is the the wormhole there's a military you know entanglement because of the dominion a threat you know so i think he has more responsibility for sure because now he's defending that sector much more than he was before and then the, because of, there is a ship attached and he's going to captain that ship now he sort of needs to be a captain. And that's right. how they justified it. And I'm sure if we went to other stations, they would be commanded by commanders. But because he's got a ship attached and he commands that ship, even though Worf does a lot of that job later, at commander level is commanding the Defiant, they justified it in their heads and for us, I guess. But yes, the, the reason behind all this was because they'd never shown a captain in charge of a station, I think. To keep on with the rest of the crew, we see that Kira is brought on board as a major. And then later in the series, she's promoted to colonel. And they don't say lieutenant colonel. They go straight from major to colonel. Now, when 
Cisco is commander, and his 2IC equivalent would be lieutenant commander slash major, that would make sense. That would make sense that his 2IC is at that rank level. When he's promoted to captain, and then Kira is promoted to colonel, I would I would suggest light colonel rather than substantive full colonel. That would also make sense that she would be his 2IC at that level. But she is getting groomed to take over from him when the series closes out. There's no doubt that eventually Cisco's going to turn around and give her the keys and say, I'm out of here. Now, how he chooses to go out, that's a different part of the narrative. But when we're just looking at career development and career management, that would be the normal course of action. Starfleet's no longer needed. It's all yours. You know enough. Take over. I'm not sure what the structure is for the Bajoran militia. So maybe they don't have a, a lieutenant colonel in there, you know. Maybe it just jumps way ahead. And maybe she's a general by now. Who knows? Exactly. Another thing that happens during the run of Deep Space Nine is they identify a vac- uh, two vacancies that they didn't realize they needed. So they say, oh, we need a new position of Klingon liaison officer. So who do we have that might fill that vacancy? Somebody that's got a lot of experience with Klingons and dealing with them and someone who's been in some real conflict at some point. There's only one person that they can think of, and that's Worf, and he gets a promotion on that assignment. The other vacancy they d- they identify is that there's no ship's counselor. So because they're moving into a warfighting stance, they're realizing that there is some need for some psychological services. We saw that with young Cadet Nog. Was he... What rank was he wearing when he was hurt? He was just a serviceman, I think, uh, at best an ensign. He required some psychological help with it, dealing with his trauma. So they bring in a counselor. A little wonky with the uh, the rank where she goes from ensign straight to lieutenant in one day. But we'll give them a little fiction. But uh, hopefully her she appreciated the pay increase as well. Oh, they don't use pay, right? No, but so. the larger quarters. There you go, larger quarters. <laughs> And then finally, O'Brien is given a rank and title that makes actual sense. So he started as a ship's bridge officer, wearing the rank of a junior grade lieutenant. And then finally, they decide, no, 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 he needs to be a chief. He needs to be in the war officer world. And I can tell you that this happened to a friend of mine. So he was a private. The officers looked at him and they said, you know what? We really think that you should be an officer. So they brought him into the officer's mess. They made him a second lieutenant and they gave him the responsibilities of an officer. And he basically said, I, I'm really not enjoying myself. I'm no longer with my friends. This is not why I came to be here. I do not want to be doing this type of work. I still want to be doing the work of a private and corporal. Can you put me back to the ranks? So they put him back to the ranks. And then over time, he moved up the NCM world stream and became a sergeant. When he released, he released as a sergeant. The fact that O'Brien starts as bridge officer and he's wearing an officer's rank, and we don't really know much about him at the beginning, but then eventually settles into the NCO world or the petty officer world in his in his rank system, that makes sense. It's rare But I know of one personal example to where that actually happened. You know, in the world of Star Trek, where you're self-actualizing as a philosophy, I imagine that would that could happen even more easily. But but does it make sense for a? Uh, should there be 
a chief engineer aboard Deep Space Nine, though? Well, it all depends on how they break down what they need to do. So if he's the chief, like if he's a chief petty officer and he's running the actual maintenance and he can report on behalf of what the officer chief engineer would be reporting and it's a smaller crew, maybe it makes sense to have a petty officer in that role. Okay. Good news for Deep Space Nine fans. (laughs) (laughs) But in the same vein, last question. Who is the reverse Harry Kim? Who had the best career let's end on a on a high note i've already stated this in the previous episodes but the best career that anybody in starfleet has had as far as i i can see is uh william shatner's portrayal of captain kirk and it's it sucks that we have to actually define that separate it from the kelvin kirk and the actual kirk we know from where no man has gone before that Kirk spent some time at Starfleet Academy as an instructor, and he was actually checked out as a really good instructor. And the cadets, well, they respected him and maybe even feared him in the fact that he was he was such a knowledgeable instructor. He, we know that he served on the Farragut in, in phaser control, so we know he's had experience in other areas of starships. We know he did planetary surveys as a young lieutenant he plays chess against the toughest opponents so he's not just out there playing chess against people he knows he can beat he's playing chess against people that he might not be able to beat so that shows that he has some intellect he survived the massacre of kodos the executioner that was prior to his his enrollment but we know that he has some mental resiliency to come out of some something traumatic like that. We know that he can make technical repairs to the ship. He's had tools in his hands. He was part of the damage control team on the Constellation, actually fixing stuff. When he needed to reprogram the Kobayashi Maru scenario, he didn't need somebody to do it for him. He was technically proficient as a cadet to do that himself. And then by the time he became the youngest starship captain he earned that captaincy he earned it through hard work through working at this at the academy through learning the ship systems and getting that experience that he needed to be at the top and despite his age he served his time in each rank level and then eventually earned that captaincy so you just merited him <laughs> that's what you just did yeah i just did i just did his uh, i just did his merit list and and explained and if i was on the promotion board those are the things I would say if I was evaluating him and if I was saying this is why he should have commanded the Enterprise. So he deserves it. Then he unfortunately accepts a promotion to Admiral, which he bitterly uh, he's bitterly disappointed by that choice and manages to come back. So, Well, that's another thing. When you have somebody that's hitting these rank levels and moving quickly through the ranks, our nickname for that is streaming. Or we would say, oh, this person has legs. To go higher. So at the end of that five-year mission, they would say, okay, your five-year mission was done. You came out of it uh, very successfully. Welcome to Starfleet Headquarters, Commodore. And then we don't see his time serving as a Commodore. The next time we see him, he's at the rank of Rear Admiral. So he spent a few years as Commodore before he was promoted to Rear Admiral. And now he's um, in charge of Starfleet Academy which also makes perfect sense because he has experience in that world as well. He was an instructor. So he's disappointed with his career, but 
evidently you're not. <laughs> right, exactly. It, it makes total sense. Yeah, and he's lucky to, even after he um, betrays his oath or whatever we want to call the, those, those events, he's only demoted to captain, so he gets his wish, really. Yes. It's not plainly obvious that he's demoted two levels. Oh, that's right. Because we always forget about Commodore, right? right? So. Right, I don't know what the Commodore level really does in Star Trek. It's like they, they pull it out from time to time. But right, Commodore Stone, Commodore Decker. Commodore O from uh, the Picard show. Yes, of course. Yeah, so it's, it's hard to know what exactly that position is because we've never had a main character hold it. Right. So it may be different from the real world. I don't know. Any last thoughts on this topic before uh, we have to go? Well, I wanted to ask you what you thought a good um, career that we haven't spoken about yet that sort of jumps to mind when we discuss this. I don't think there is a better answer than than the ones that you gave. You're right that Deep Space Nine had maybe, even like the characters you didn't talk about, I think got extra pips as time went on. Like Dax did not stay at the same level. Bashir did not stay at the same level. But yeah, I think you pretty much, you know, got at the heart of it. I think there are some interesting careers, like maybe LaForge's career, who started out as a helmsman and then moved to downstairs to the chief engineer role and then grew into that position. Well, that's interesting because for the first few episodes, there was a different chief engineer. So that position was filled by a temporary person over a couple of weeks as the new Starship Enterprise was being basically on its first test drive. So we had Chief Engineer Argyle and Leland T. Lynch. That was his name, right? Uh, McDougal. There's a number in the, the that first season. That Chief Engineer position on the Enterprise D was not locked down. And they would have had people come in to fill in for a few weeks and then transition out while they were... And and that happens from time to time where we don't actually have somebody succession plan for a position or we're waiting for somebody else to come in that we do have succession plan for that position and we'll have people come in and fill in for a few weeks while that essential position is unfilled. That happens all the time. So in other words, during the first season of Next Gen, that is probably a vacant position. And we right. just don't really realize it. Uh, and then eventually LaForge is merited and gets that post, you know. That's an right. interesting way to look at it. I like a fictional – I say they're all fictional. But a fictional career <laughs> or a an alternate reality career we don't know about. Here I like maybe um, Dr. Crusher. You've mentioned right. her already as to going back to Academy and coming back. But, you know, in the seventh season, they have her command the ship. And she's obviously gone through that training that Troy is only now accessing. That's they, right. They, they yeah. talk about it. And then in the in a certain future, not the future that, that wound up happening, she's the captain of a medical ship. So I like that. that she. It's a little bit like your uh, truck driver example at the beginning, where she's, right. yeah. there's a link between those positions, even though, you know, captain, you don't think is a, a medical position, but captain of a medical ship that seems to be like the truck driver example taken to, to that extreme or like my example for uhura where right. we're used to seeing her at the comm station but now she's the xo of the excelsior that's very similar to what we saw with beverly crusher she's no longer in the sick bay doing doctoring but she's in command of that medical ship in more recent star trek commander burnham Started as a XO, um, then won't call her a mutineer, but you know she's drummed out of the 
You can't mutiny by yourself. No. And so, <laughs> you, you know, you, you, you know, she's demoted completely, reintroduced into the rank system, uh, and eventually right. becomes a captain of a ship. But that's a little bit like trying to figure out the Maquis or whatever, because Discovery's journey is very strange and convoluted, and Burnham's right. especially so. So I don't think that's a career – that's a good career. Well, it's an interesting career to look at, perhaps, but it's not one that, that relates to, the, to reality much. Absolutely. So those are the ones that I might throw in there. Mike, I'll give you a chance. Uh, some, some people uh, need to know about the uh, Canadian Military uh, History podcast. So where can they find that? It's based on my website, CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca. There's 57 episodes. Uh, still the same number as the last time we spoke. I haven't produced a new episode. But those are the stories of actual soldiers that, and sailors and aviators that I have met during my time and who I felt had compelling stories that were worthy of sharing with people. So check that out. Thank you again, Mike Lacroix. Stick around for Subspace Transmissions. That's your feedback on our previous episode. Imagine a state where reality is a dangerous concept, where every aspect of public and private life is strictly controlled, where the voice of the state is the only voice, and the only limits are that of the imagination. And even that is gone. Imagine a state where memories are wiped away, leaving only traces of the past, where the final frontier of space becomes a weightless freezing vacuum, except for what is useful to the state. A great intergalactic state of hundreds of planets that stretches across the universe called the Federation. And imagine all that stands in the way of total conquest is a tiny band of thieves, smugglers, embezzlers, murderers, and rebel rousers. Are they criminals or liberators? Reality is a dangerous concept, but everyone interprets it in a slightly different way in Blake 7. Welcome everyone to Straight Out of the Federation. Blake7.Libson.com Incoming subspace transmissions. Give me that Star Trek is back, but Star Trek news is not. So I've discontinued this feature because it's harder to follow when you take six-month breaks. There's a lot of news during that time. And in any case, I think even by the time I gave you some of those news, you know, on a month-to-month basis, it was already old news. So we're not going to be doing that anymore, but we are going to get through your listener comments. Go back six months in your mind, and you'll remember we ended the season with a uh, spotlight on The Son of Spock series of books. Yesterday's Sun and Time for Yesterday, the two novels by A.C. Crispin. My guest was the irredeemable Shag. Chris Franklin says, first off, we need an intervention with Shag. Haven't seen all of the original series? Put those damn books down and watch some TV, son! Second, all our yesterdays, the episode that was the basis for these two sequels is Cindy's absolute favorite Trek episode. She loves these books dearly as well. One of these days I need to read them, but I don't know if I will enjoy the experience as much as her enthusiastic retelling of them. Heck, she made me consider them canon. You can catch some of that enthusiasm on a very early episode of Supermates, where we cover the original episode, and Cindy also breaks down the sequels. You can easily find that link in the comments section uh, on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Gene Hendricks says, you were right. Someone did Photoshop the Wrath of Khan uniforms to be department colors. I have no idea how old this is, but I remember seeing at least 10 years ago. So it also gives us a link to some different uniforms for the movie era. 
I think those pictures are interesting, but I don't like Kirk in gold in that. Anyway, I think I would switch to Command Red, the golds and reds around like they did in TNG. I would make that happen in the movie era if this were somehow real. Rob McCarthy says Spock does not need any more family. He's almost Cyclops, uh, which is obviously a dig at Discovery. But I thought it all worked. They, they made it work. Brian Linton says, as much as I enjoy science fiction, I'm a fantasy fan at heart, so I may have to check out Time for Yesterday. Also, I'm right there with you, Shag. I hate it when science fiction and fantasy get lumped together as if they were the same thing. And Rob McCarthy is back to answer that point. He thinks the line is blurry between those two genres because like superhero universes, you almost have to go concept by concept. Hulk is science fiction, Doctor Strange is fantasy, but somehow they all exist in the same world. But then sometimes you have Spider-Man, clearly science fiction, but then they did the whole spider totem thing, so there is fantasy in there as well. If I'm to answer that point, or all these points, sometimes SF tropes allow for a visit to a fantasy-ish environment, a primitive culture that might equate with sword, if not exactly sorcery. Uh, time for Yesterday is an example. Firetime, Janissaries, even Dune, you know, is, is borderline fantasy in a way. But the way you go to that world is sci-fi. And you can have hybrids. I think superhero fiction is a big mix of everything possible. Uh, it's got crime, action, SF, fantasy, horror, and more. And you can have a fantasy world where science is a force, or where technology works by magic, or where it's all very strange and metafictional. Like I don't know how to categorize a lot of China Mieville's work for example. But in fairness to Shag, Star Trek is a science fiction universe. And when we've seen magic, it's always come with a science fictional explanation. Clark's law, if you will. Doctor Who's a little crazier as to what can happen, but it's still sci-fi and Clark's law is in effect. I bring up that franchise because they've done a couple of novels where there's magic somehow, whether pervasive nanites manipulated by so-called wizards or godlike beings who are able to change the laws of the universe. There's always been a scientific explanation, none of which renders Shag's opinion wrongheaded because you still have the doctor or Kirk or whoever hanging out with unicorns and fighting sorcerers. He can still dislike the tropes and find them lacking in Trekness, even if we perhaps better remember Kirk versus witches in Katzpa or versus a Greek god in Who Mourns for Adonais. In other words, there's plenty of fantasy in Star Trek, if not the exact type that we see in Time for Yesterday, not sword and sorcery. So it's bound to come up. There are some very sword and sorcery TNG novels too, and I don't really like them. So this is something that, that writers come back to again and again in the spin-off fiction. Alan W. writes, it's a great show. Uh, sorry to hear it's going on hiatus for a few months. Well, it's back. I read a lot of Trek novels from around this time or slightly before Star Trek IV until the first couple of years of TNG. I remember Diane Duane, Diane Carey, Margaret Wander Bonanno, Vonda McIntyre, and while A.C. Crispin's name loomed large in the Trek literary canon, and I certainly knew of this pair of novels, I don't think I ever read them. I was wondering if the chicken salad sandwich thing was a reference to what Shatner likes to eat. Kirk does complain about a Tribble eating his chicken sandwich and coffee in The Trouble with Tribbles? And I'd remembered Shatner had emotional scars from the low-budget meals at a five-and-dime store, which he mentions in The Making of Star Trek. Of all those possibilities, it is probably a reference to The Trouble with Tribbles. Uh, Michael Kramer says, This is absolutely in my head canon as a genuine part of Star Trek lore. The main reason is that when Time for Yesterday had come out, I was still very new to Trek. I really only had become a full all-in Trekkie in 1986. 
As a result, Yesterday's Sun was very new to me, as I had only just read it and listened to the audiobook a few months prior to time for yesterday's release. Actually, I think the audiobooks are another reason I hold these books as canon, because Leonard Nimoy and James Dewan's involvement in their being dramatized lends more legitimacy to the story that other stories, though equally good, may lack. I stayed up all night reading Time for Yesterday the night before my English midterm exam, it had nothing at all to do with the test. I was just reading it for fun and couldn't put it down. So on that note, the Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. If you like our content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. It even unlocks rewards. For example, for $5 a month, you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendation list like Earth President Doug Van Diver. Join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com. And as usual, let me remind you that you too can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com on the Fire and Water Facebook page or on Twitter where we are Podcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly. 